Welcome back to the Wayfarer Podcast. I'm Tom Vanderwell. It is another Wayfarer Weekend. And this week we are finishing up the 10-part series, Beginner's Guide to the Great Story. And we're going to wade into one of the most mysterious, strange, and uh, freakish kind of books, according to most people, that you can read in the great story. It is the final chapter, the book of Revelation, the apocalypse, the end times. So many questions about this, so much confusion. And uh, I'm going to try and sort through that and give those of you who may have never read it, may have lots of questions, may have never read the Bible itself, just to, um, to give you a little bit of an introduction and give you a little bit of a primer so that if you do decide to read it yourself, you've got uh, a little bit of background with which to wade in and try it out. Our chapter day podcast continues. We are in the book of Psalms to continuing to make our way through that 150 chapter anthology of ancient Hebrew song lyrics. And that's been a lot of fun. It's been really fun getting back into that and going through that again every weekday, Monday through Friday. Please always feel free to share if uh, one of the podcasts or whether it be a chapter day or Wayfair Weekend, you think uh, you know somebody that might enjoy it or benefit from it, please feel free to share. Remember that the text versions of every chapter of the podcast can be found on the blog and website, tomvanderwell.com. Also, upcoming messages tomorrow, November 1, for anybody who's listening to this right away, uh, I will be at the third church sanctuary at 8 o'clock, 9.15, and 11 o'clock here in Pella, Iowa. It's on the Third Church YouTube channel at 9.15. And then November 15th, November 29th, and January 3rd, I am scheduled to be in the Third Church Auditorium only at 11 o'clock. That is here in Pella, Iowa. And of course, the video on YouTube of every message I will post to the messages page on TomBandrell.com. And those dates are also listed on the upcoming messages page on TomBandrell.com. So we'll be wading into the book of Revelation right after this. Okay, so I have to begin today as we're talking about the apocalypse, the end times, to just think how timely, since we are days away from the most contentious U.S. presidential election of our lifetime, both sides of our polarized political spectrum are having apocalyptic conniptions at this point, at least some people. So bless you, my friend, despite what you may have heard or believed let me tell you this, neither candidate fits the description for either the Antichrist or the second coming of Jesus. So no matter what happens, I think we're good. I don't foresee the end of the world as we know it coming next Wednesday. So if you listen to this before November 4th, 2020, be encouraged no matter what side of the aisle you're on. And if you're listening to this after November 4th, 2020, and you find out that I was wrong and the end times actually did kick in, well, you can come and do what they did with the prophets of old and stone me. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's 
weighed in. And remember, as we have gone through the entire first nine parts of the Beginner's Guide to the Great Story, the three words, context, metaphor, and mystery. So let's begin by figuring out how those three words fit in to this book of Revelation. First of all, context. What is the book of Revelation? Well, John, the disciple of Jesus, he was one of the first disciples, Peter, James, and John. John was known as, he and his brother James, as the sons of thunder because of their fiery anger and rage. But later in life, John became known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He had, uh, he was a great example of a changed life by his relationship with Jesus. And he uh, was the only disciple, according to tradition, that died a natural death. He lived a long life. And later in his life, because he was a believer, he was sentenced to live in exile on the island of Patmos. And on the island of Patmos, he had a vision. So Revelation is a record of his vision. And so he wrote it down and then passed it out so that people would know about this vision that he had. Let's remember if we go back to part seven of the Beginner's Guide to the Great Story, were the books of prophecy. And we talked about the fact that the prophetic is largely metaphor. All the prophets of the Old Testament and John in the New Testament had these prophetic visions that were basically snatches of imagery. Um, It was images, experiences in the spiritual dimension. you, know, you can read some of this stuff and just sort of feel like it was some sort of spiritual LSD trip. And because metaphor is layered with meaning, remember that it can have multiple meanings. It's a both and. So sometimes a prophet wrote things that were happening about things that were happening in their time only to come find out that it was actually layered with another meaning having to do with Jesus. And it could also have a meaning with the end times and the apocalypse. So part of the mystery that is the prophetic is that it's it's not like a self-contained one story. And even in John's vision, he sees snatches of things or images of things, but the exact timing of how all these things play out, it's it, that's not kind of the way that it's written in totally linear contained fashion. Uh, like a novel or a book, there are these visions and there are things that might overlap or you might think that they are linear, but maybe they're not. And then you've got things that have come out of the Old Testament prophets, or you have things that Jesus said that was prophetic. And so we take all of these, in fact, this is our 10th part. So we had, you know, we had the books of law and the books of history and the books of poetry and wisdom. We had the books of prophecy and the gospels and the letters. And basically you can find the prophetic in every section. So scholars have to try and take all of these pro- prophetic pieces, even the book of Revelation, and then 
piece the puzzle together with all the other prophetic words in all of the other sections. So keep that in mind as we as we wade through this. So when we talk about the theories of events described by John's visions, scholars piece it together like a puzzle. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why I have continuously studied the great story for 40 years. Because no one no one goes and reads one chapter of a book and understands the whole book. No, you can't go like into the middle and read chapter 10 of a book and go, oh, well, I know what happened. No, you have to read the entire story and see how it all fits together. And so if you just go in and read the Gospels of Jesus, you're missing a ton of stuff that happened before and you don't have all the pieces of the puzzle that are uh, of what comes next. And so it is important to kind of have this holistic understanding. So it's important to have a framework and it's worth joining us on this chapter day journey as I uh, very slowly, one little chapter at a time, make my way through the great story over and over again. Okay, before we wade into talking about Revelation, I have three ground rules. Ready for this? So if you're taking notes, get ready, grab your pencil. Three ground, ground rules. Ground rule number one, be wise. What I mean by this is don't go down the rabbit hole. And this, that's, by the way, a very ironic parallel because going down the rabbit hole comes from Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, which is another kind of LSD-type surreal trip with visions and characters uh, and all sorts of things. So going down the rabbit hole, mystery is something, remember I've always said, mystery is something we can endlessly understand. And with the deeply mysterious world of Revelation and the end times and the prophetic, it can be a rabbit hole you find yourself getting lost in. Personally, it's a rabbit hole you can get lost in that I feel you end up with nothing of real spiritual or relational value to show for it when you go down the rabbit hole and get totally absorbed in it without being able to keep it in the context of everything that else is that happening in, in your life and in the spiritual journey, okay? That's number one. Also, in being wise, please understand that every generation thinks it's the end times. Every, everyone. Go back through history, and as a student of history, I can tell you that, that throughout history, there were people always that were convinced that this is it, that this is the end. We're living in the apocalypse. The end is coming. And one of the things that I have noticed, this is my observance, okay, that as people age and get further and later in their own life journeys and they see the world around them rapidly changing and they begin feeling the anxiety of the unknown, it, it, it becomes this almost natural instinct to become apocalyptic in our thinking. We get towards the end of our life journey, and it's easier to project that onto the entire world around us. So I see a lot of people that, as they get older, they go, oh, this is it. This is the end. I think Jesus is coming before I, you know, any time now. I've seen this in my grandparents. I've seen it in my parents. Um, I've told Taylor and Madison that if they see it in me, that they can slap me upside the head and, and 
tell me to quit it. Because the reality is, is people have been predicting the end of the world since right after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And even the, even the apostles were convinced that it was, it was imminent. So, but be wise, okay? People have been predicting the end forever. Is it the end? I don't know. The reality is, is that we, we don't know, okay? Number two, be humble. Remember that the smartest, most learned, and devout scholars and study, those who studied the Hebrew scriptures were completely wrong about Jesus. Beware of anyone who tells you, oh, well, for sure, this is exactly what it means. Especially walk away from anyone who tells you exactly when in the future these things will happen. I know it's interesting to think about, and I know that it's interesting to contemplate. But Jesus himself said that he didn't know when these things were going to happen. And he said that no one knows when it will occur. He also says it will be a big surprise. So when that televangelist on television says, oh yeah, it's going to happen in 2020, you just don't know. And in fact, it's not a surprise then. If everybody that's watching the televangelist thinks that it is, then it's not going to be a surprise. So keep that in mind. All right. It's, it's fun to think about. It's fun to mull over. It's fun to have great conversations over a pint. But be humble and just understand that there is so much that we don't know. And if everyone was wrong about the first coming of Jesus, that leads me to believe that the second coming of Jesus and the, the events of Revelation are probably not going to play out exactly. Nobody's got it exactly right. Uh, we may have pieces of it. But yeah, just be humble. We just don't know a lot. And number three, be encouraged. There is a lot, I'm just going to warn you, there's a lot of doom, gloom, death, destruction, suffering, and despair that is described in John's visions. Because the end, and that's why in apocalyptic literature and dystopian literature, everything is dark and gray and black and destructive. And, you know, we go back to Lord of the Flies existence because that's a lot of the way that it's described. And so people can get read it and get really freaked out and get really afraid. But as a Jesus follower and as a believer, I have to remember that in Matthew 24, Jesus likened his prophetic description of the apocalypse and the suffering that's going to happen at the end, he likens it to birth pains. So what happens after birth pains? New life, joy, gladness. And Jesus reminded us that, hey, you don't have to worry, you don't have to be afraid, and you don't have to be anxious. In fact, you can put your hope in all that is going to be after the birth pangs, when the new life, when the new earth, when the new heaven, when all things are made new. Keep that in mind. That's what Jesus wanted us to be focused on, not the, not the, the contractions of the delivery but the joy of the new life that comes afterwards. So the three rules, be wise, be humble, be encouraged, be hopeful. Now there are diverse schools of thought about John's revelation. 
And if you wade in and you begin reading or you begin reading books about it or begin studying it, you're going to run into all sorts of, and you can imagine, it because it is a mystery and there are different ways that it gets interpreted. There actually is one school of thought that the book of Revelation is just this politically satirical allegory where John was taking the, the Roman religious imagery and metaphor of Caesar being God and then attaching them to Jesus. And in this school of thought, they see the whole thing as, again, first century political satire, and it, they, they're dismissive of the prophetic and the apocalyptic nature of the visions. Now, personally, I think that's a real stretch, um, but hey, I'm humble. Everybody's got their opinions, okay? There's a school of thought that the book of Revelation is really about events that happen in the first century with the Roman Empire, the persecution of Christians uh, in the first century by Rome and throwing Christians to the, to the lions in the circus and beheading Christians and, and Nero, uh, Caesar Nero burning Christians uh, alive in his garden to light his orgies, the Jewish rebellion against Rome, the subsequent destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the Jewish temple, the chaotic events surrounding the decline of the Roman Empire, and the ascension of the Holy Roman Empire, Christendom, in the fourth century. And I've I've heard and read scholars who make a really good case that that the the events in Revelation and the visions in Revelation can be applied to events that happened in that first, second, and third centuries. The most common, of course, school of thought is that John's visions describe events that are yet to happen in a climactic end to everything as we know it. Remember, metaphor can be layered with meaning. So maybe there are pieces of all three of these schools of thoughts and the others that are true. Maybe it is layered with all sorts of meaning. It had meaning for the first century and it has different meaning for us today as we see the events around us or we look with hope to the events that are to come. Be wise, be humble. It's all right. I mean, it could, it could be snatches of all three things. The story will play out as God has designed it, no matter what I think, no matter what you think, okay? The great story is continuing to be told. I personally believe that it is uh, a vision of the end times and the apocalypse, and especially because Jesus said so much, especially if you go like to Matthew 24, he really spoke about things that really kind of fit with what John writes in Revelation in saying that there's going to be this day. There's going to be this, he said he would come again, and when he does, there's going to be a day of judgment and um, the end of all things, uh, this climactic event. So I buy the most common school of thought that it has to do primarily with events that are yet to happen. So the outline of the book of Revelation goes like this. There's a prologue in chapter 1, and then John describes that he has this vision. He is visited by Jesus, the resurrected Christ. He is given a message to these seven churches that existed in that area of Asia Minor. Uh, there were gatherings of Jesus' followers in that area, and Jesus gives John specific messages 
for those churches. Because again, okay, well, again, we got to go back to what we know about context, metaphor, and mystery. It there was a specific message for those churches at that period of time. Could there also be layered with meaning for us today? Absolutely. Uh, because the messages Jesus had for those churches um, applied to human beings who were his followers, who were in a very specific situation, and they can have meanings for us as well. But after the messages to these seven churches, John begins to describe his visions, and the, the rest of the book is really a description of them. John is taken into what he describes as the throne room of heaven. Now, keep in mind that this is not a unique situation. Isaiah, in chapter 6, was given a vision, was taken to the throne room of seven. Paul spoke of being taken up to heaven. And Paul had lots to say about the prophetic, and we'll get into that here in a little bit. So John goes into this throne room of heaven where he sees all of these things. He sees three sets of events. There is a scroll with seven seals. And when Jesus, metaphorically described as the lamb who was slain, who sits on the throne, when, the, when Jesus unseals, takes off each seal, a series of events is described. Then there's a series of seven angels with seven trumpets. And when each of the angels blow their trumpet, there is another series of events. Okay, so with each, with each trumpet blast. And then he sees in his visions seven angels with seven bowls. And when each angel pours his bowl out, there's another series of events on the earth. So every time a seal is opened, a trumpet blown, a bowl poured out, events happening here on earth. And this is where the doom and gloom come in. Because the events that John sees with each of these, with the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls, war, famine, pestilence, cataclysmic natural events, stars falling the earth, uh, earthquakes, the sun, uh, the moon being darkened, the sea turning to blood. I mean, it, it's very vivid and very strong. In the midst of it, we also are introduced to various personages. There's a woman, a dragon, the beast, more commonly known as the Antichrist, the person who seems like the Savior and the Messiah, but is really uh, working for the side of evil. The ver there are various beasts that are described. There's a false prophet. There's the great prostitute, the whore of Babylon. And so we've got all of these weird personages. We've got this three sets of seven different judgments. From what most scholars say then, there is a timeline of events. There are seven years known as the Great Tribulation. And the seven years, by the way, comes actually from a vision of Daniel in Daniel, the ninth chapter. All of these terrible events, the, the seals, the trumpets, the bulls, most 
scholars believe that we're talking about a, a period of seven years of this incredible, terrible time on earth, followed by the return of Jesus, in which then Satan is imprisoned in the abyss. And by the way, that's all in like in the last couple of chapters of Revelation in 19 and 20 is where it really does kind of truncate a bunch of stuff. Jesus comes back. Satan is imprisoned in the abyss for a thousand years. Jesus reigns on the earth. And then at the end of a thousand years, Satan is released. There's a subsequent final battle of good and evil. Then evil is vanquished. There is what's known as the great white throne judgment when Jesus judges justly. And then everything that we know as it is right now passes away. Old things pass away. The old earth, the old heaven, the old and new things come. Which is sort of interesting because even when you think about science and you think about the fact that uh, physicists believe, at least there's a theory out there, that just as the universe is expanding at a certain rate, there's also the belief that at some point it's going to shrink and then it's basically going to go back <laughs> to, to sort of this nothingness and then there'll be another Big Bang. Um, but I think that it's also important to think about the cycle of life, that we are born and then we have this life, and then when we die, our body is either cremated or we're put into the earth, and then our body decomposes. And when it decomposes, what happens? It returns to the basic matter of earth, and it gets recycled by the universe as energy that then creates new life. So your dead body in the ground, uh, you know, at some point when everything decomposes and falls away, that was the idea. I mean, now we have vaults and things that are supposed to keep your body there for a thousand years or whatever it is. But your body in the ground, when it gets buried, decomposes, turns to dust, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And then it gets recycled into new life, new vegetation in the cycle of the seasons and a new spring. And so on this spiritual level, as you think about the great story, I see that everything is connected. That I think about when the physicists say that, yeah, everything's expanding, but at some point it's all going to contract and, and everything is going to end and it's going to recycle and become another Big Bang. I'm like, going, okay, well, maybe that's the way God has it designed. Maybe there, because that's what Jesus always said, there's going to be new life and then old things pass away. So I see that there is, God has layered the universe with this basic theme, life death, new life. Things begin, things live, things die, and then things get resurrected. There is new life, there is a new beginning, old things pass away, new things come. And so going back to rule number three, be encouraged because this whole thing is about new life. This whole thing is about old things passing away and new things, a new birth, good things coming in the end. 
All right. What about making sense? So I've kind of given you the basic outline. I could spend I could spend weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks diving in to all of the visions, all of the imagery. Um, I'm not going to do that. I my my goal today again is just to give you a little bit of an introduction so that if as you decide to wade in and read some of it for yourself that some of this begins at least to make sense in the context of maybe what you've heard or you've read or you've heard other people say so let me make sense of a few things that you may have heard people talking about what about this thing called the rapture Interestingly enough, the rapture isn't really described in John's vision. It comes really out of the visions of Paul. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes to the uh, believers of Jesus in Corinth, and he says, listen, I tell you a mystery. There's our mystery. I tell you a mystery, something we can endlessly understand. We will not all sleep but we will all be changed. And so sleep there is the metaphor for death. And in fact, when Jesus went to raise Lazarus from the dead, he said, our brother Lazarus has fallen asleep. I'm going to go wake him up. Sleep was a metaphor that they used to describe death. So Paul is saying, we're not all going to die, but we all, and he's talking about all believers, all followers of Jesus, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. So there's a connection to Revelation, the last trumpet. So Paul had some understanding in his visit to heaven and what was shown to him, which we don't really have a clear record of, but he's saying here, there's going to be this last trumpet. When it sounds, the dead will be raised. So basically the bodies of everybody who has fallen asleep, who has died, will be raised into an imperishable body and we will be changed. So you have this idea of a last trumpet in an an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, the bodies of those who are dead are raised to a new body that is spiritual and imperishable. Now, in writing to the followers of Jesus in the town of Thessalonica, Paul writes this, brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. So there's the metaphor again, sleep in death. So that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. There's our hope again. So again, Paul is saying, hey, look, I'm going to tell you this because I want you to have hope. I want you to be encouraged. That's rule number three. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Jesus rose again. And so we believe that God will bring Jesus with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So everyone who has died and fallen asleep is with Jesus in heaven. Their bodies bodies are still here on the earth. And by, by the way, I don't believe, it doesn't matter to me whether it's cremation or uh, burying people. Or some people get freaked out about cremation. Like, well, if you're cremated and it's just ashes and you sprinkle them up, then how can God put your body back together again? Are you kidding me? He's God. He, he can do he can do it. Are you saying God can't do that? Um, yes. So it doesn't matter whether your ashes or dust or decomposed or all of your atoms have been regurgitated and recycled into other things in the universe. I don't think that matters. When, when Jesus comes back, Paul says that 
all those who have died before that point are going to receive their new bodies. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left on this earth until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. There's the trumpet again. And the dead in Christ will be raised. And then we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another. There's a hope again. Encourage one another with these words. That is the text that really describes what people call the rapture. When Jesus comes, but notice he doesn't come to earth. Notice that Paul says the dead are raised and then those who are still alive are raised to meet them in the air. So the rapture really means snatching away. And those who believe in the rapture, and I do, by the way, believe that there's going to be, this is, this is where the, it's going to take everybody by surprise. All of a sudden, boom, in the twinkling of an eye, in a second, those who are on the earth who are followers and believers of Jesus are going to be snatched away to meet Jesus in the air. So if you you know if you've ever seen there's movies about this and there's the little left behind series from back in the 80s and 90s and writers have used this as a device to tell um, different kinds of novels and different kinds of stories, but that's the idea that all of a sudden everyone is going to be gone. That's called the rapture. One of the most common ways of understanding or the ways of believing the end times is that when this rapture suddenly and surprisingly occurs and millions of people just disappear, that the world is thrown into turmoil. There is chaos. There is craziness. There is what happened and there is fear. There is anxiety. And in the midst of this anxiety, there is a savior who steps up and goes, Hey, no, 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 no. I'm going to, as things are all falling apart, just follow me. Trust me. I've got all the answers. And that this is the antichrist. And that also kicks off this seven years of tribulation. And I'm not going to get into the, the details of it, but it's popularly believed that the seven years of tribulation, there are actually three and a half years of relative peace as the Antichrist establishes himself and kind of gets everything back on level 30. Everybody's going, oh yeah, good, follow. And there is also imagery in uh, John's visions of, and this, of a, basically the Antichrist unites the entire earth. There's like a one world government. There is one economy. It talks about the fact this is where you may have heard about um, the image of the beast. And we're all familiar with 666 as the number of the devil. Where that comes out of John's revelations as well. And he says that the Antichrist, who gets the world and convinces everybody that he will bring peace 
and justice and take care of everybody. The way that the Antichrist controls things is economically. And that's what John describes, is that basically everybody is given this mark on either on their hand or their forehead. If you don't have this mark, you can't buy or sell anything. So how do you survive if you don't take the mark? So there's this coercion, just take the mark. Uh, and so, of course, everybody's thinking about, well, wow, um, we're living in a time where, hey, just uh, put this chip in your skin. Um, instead of tapping your, your credit card on the, uh, the reader at the checkout line, we're just going to have this barcode or we're going to have this uh, chip in our hand. Um, and so when you go to the store, it just scans you and it automatically debits your account and everything's taken care of. This is why a lot of people are kind of like going, wow, we're at a time of the earth where that could literally happen. And that's kind of true. We are. Does it mean that it's going to happen soon? Uh, that not, ne not necessarily. But anyway, so that is, so that we've got these three and a half years of peace. And then it's popular to believe that, that there's a chain of events that in the last three and a half years of this seven year period are when all of the judgments come, all of the seals, all of the bowls, all of the trumpets, all of the bad stuff is going to happen. And of course, those who weren't raptured, who understand that, oh my gosh, this really did happen. I think that that was true and I missed it, um, are going to follow Jesus. And then the theory is that there are these 144,000 that kind of go, wow, we missed it. But hey, now we get it, and they become believers, refuse to take the mark. They are punished and persecuted and put to death. The other thing that you may have heard, well, when is the rapture going to happen? There are basically three, and I'm going to make it four, theories. There are some scholars who believe that this rapture, the snatching away of Christians in the twinkling of an eye, is going to happen before the tribulation, and that's going to kick off the seven years of tribulation. So that's called pre-trib rapture, pre-tribulation. Then there's a school of thought that says that that snatching away of Jesus' followers is going to happen in the middle. So there's that three and a half years of peace, and the Christians are kind of here for that. And then right before all of the judgment and the suffering come, then Jesus comes and snatches everybody away. And they, that school of thought is called the mid-trib rapture. And then there are some who believe that at the end of the seven years, and in chapter 19 of Revelation, when Jesus returns to earth, that the rapture and the second coming of Christ are all one event, and that believers and followers of Jesus have to go through the entire seven years and go through the three and a half years of chaos. And they, that school of thought is called the post-tribulation rapture. So you've got pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. And that's, I've heard debates endlessly my entire life as I've studied these things um, from people that think different, different ways. And of course, I would love it to be a pre-tribulation rapture. And I kind of fall in that school of thought, but I also recognize that in falling in that school of thought, I'm, I'm also like, well, if it happens when I'm here, I sure hope that it is. Uh, and there is no doubt that throughout Jesus' teaching and throughout the New Testament and throughout the epistles, there's lots and lots and lots and lots of writing about get ready to suffer, get ready 
for the persecution. Be willing to suffer for your faith. And when people come and, and want to kill you because of your faith or persecute you, execute you, get ready because it's going to happen. But have hope for what comes after and be willing to suffer. So there's also school that's like, well, could it be the post-tribulation rapture? And could God intend for those believers who are here on earth to suffer through the tribulation? Um, yeah, maybe. I, again, rule number two, be humble. I like to believe that it's the pre-trib, but I also want to be wise and humble and understand that nobody got it right when Jesus came the first time. I could be wrong. That's why I am the fourth school of thought. And the fourth school of thought is called pan-tribulation. And that means it's going to pan out in the end. <laughs> I love, always love that joke, but it's true. It doesn't matter what I believe. It's all going to pan out as God has it written. So I'm a pan-tribulationist. doesn't really matter what I think. It will all pan out. So then after the tribulation, again, the, there's the second coming when Jesus comes to earth, the visions of John's revelation describe a thousand years where Jesus reigns on the earth. So now going back to our books of prophecy, one of the things that I mentioned in the Old Testament prophets is that many of them had visions of the Messiah who is going to come and reign and reign justly on the earth. Christian scholars pop believe that what they saw was a vision of the ultimate, the second coming of Christ. What they didn't see was the first coming when Jesus came as a suffering servant who so loved the world that he gave his life and died on a cross for the sins of the world. So there's a first coming that is also talked about in prophecy, but again, nobody wants to talk about suffering and death and crucifixion <laughs> and, and being a servant. Everyone wants to talk about uh, escaping suffering and being in control and being on the throne and having you know, everything be great. So Christian scholars believe that the Jewish scholars were quick to dismiss the suffering servant part and grab on to the visions of the end when the Messiah would reign on earth. Now Christians say, oh yeah, well, that's coming. The first reign of the Messiah has come. The second coming is yet to come. So there's this, it describes this thousand years where Jesus reigns on the earth. Then there's a final battle, the final judgment. And then when you get into chapters 20 and 21, the final chapters of Revelation, what does it describe? A new heaven, a new earth. Old things pass away, new things come. Back to rule number three, Jesus ceaselessly told his followers there was no reason to be afraid, no reason to be discouraged, no reason to be anxious, told us not to be afraid or discouraged or anxious. He told us that we can have hope. Now, in, when Peter wrote his letter to the believers of Jesus that were living in exile, he told them to be alert and sober-minded. And that word for alert is a Greek word, anazonomy. The imagery, the metaphorical imagery of that Greek word gives the image of 
like in the ancient times, you know, everybody had the wore long cloaks, wore long robes. And being alert, anisonomy gives the idea of lifting that outer garment to prepare to do something, to move, to work, to run, to perform a task. So think about, uh, you know, in the old days, if a, if a woman is wearing a long dress and she lifts her dress as she walks up the, a long flight of stairs, that's anisonomy. And so in John, the 21st chapter, Jesus had risen from the dead. He was standing on the shore and Peter and the boys go out to go fishing because uh, they're like, well, Jesus is gone. Uh, what do we do? Let's go back to our old jobs, I guess. They're fishing and they see Jesus on the shore and Peter grabs, it says it grabs his outer cloak and then dove into the water to go meet Jesus. And that's the idea of hope. It's not passive. It's not waiting around for something. It is active. It is rolling up our sleeves and approaching today, approaching tomorrow, approaching the future, approaching this whole idea of the end times with hope, with encouragement. Because we know that whatever suffering we may have to go through, it's just a birth pang. It's contractions. It's cosmic, eternal contractions. And what is it doing? It's getting ready to give birth to new life, new heaven, new earth. And that's how the great story ends. So I believe Jesus is not dead and I can finish this day focused on what God has called me to do. And tomorrow I can roll up my sleeves and press on because my hope is in Jesus. I believe what he did and said, including his promises that the doom and gloom are simply birth pains. Past the contractions, the cosmic contractions of the apocalypse, there is new life. In other words, the best is yet to come. And you can hang your hat on that, my friend. Feel free to share this if you think there's anybody that might uh, benefit or enjoy listening to it. Continue to join me on our chapter a day journey. We'll be back into the Psalms on Monday. And as we take off to finish this day in this life that is moving towards the end of the great story. Will you receive this blessing? My friend, may the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. May the rains fall soft upon your fields. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the palm of his hand. Take care.